gods and various ancestors. To a very small extent, when one considers the many different genealogical and genetic ancestors that man on earth has had with time. However, if certain genes are able to live on indefinitely, the question becomes intriguing, at the very least from a what-if perspective, due to the fact that the history of humanity, dating back to its biblical origins, is not one of triumph. It is a story that is more tragic than anything that Shakespeare or Homer could have ever written. Because he disobeyed God, Adam's time in the paradisiacal Garden of Eden is cut short, despite the fact that he was a wondrous creation that was designed to serve as an enslaved person. If they are allowed to have children, Adam will have to eke out a living from the parched soil, and Eve will be forced to give birth while in excruciating pain. They have two sons, and there are now four humans on the earth. However, Cain, who works the land and is jealous of Abel, who tends sheep, kills his brother, bringing the total number of humans down to three. Our serfdom, disobedience, and fratricide part of our genetic makeup because we are mostly heirs to the DNA of Earth's animal kingdom? Or is it because the bloodline selected by the Anunnaki, the so-called alien genes, was that of a young rebel who incited his crewmates to kill Enlil? While the god whose blood was used is executed for being the rebel's leader in some texts, such as references to the creation of man in the Epic of Creation, other Atrahasis versions explain the choice as due to God having the right Te'ima, which can be translated as life's essence or personality, genetically speaking. New tablet discoveries in the 1990s in Sippa by Iraqi archaeologists clearly name him Aliyah in Akkadian and Nagar in Sumerian, an epithet name meaning metal craftsman, specifically in copper. The cuneiform signs giving his name used to be read, in Akkadian, as Wela in places where they were not entirely missing. In light of the fact that the Nachash serpent, knower of secrets in the Bible's Garden of Eden, tale also originates from the same verb, root, as nechoshet, which in Hebrew refers to copper, this could point to a deliberate choice rather than a simple punishment. His position as the leader of the rebellion against Enlil is bolstered by the fact that he and his spouse, Alatum, are included in the pantheon of gods associated with Enki. Biblical scholars agree that the conflict between Cain and Abel was rooted in the never-ending and ubiquitous struggle for control over land and water that has existed throughout history. This theme is elaborated upon in a text known as The Myth of Cattle and Grain, where Enlil is the deity of Anshan, grains and farming, and Enki of Laha, woolly cattle and sheep herding. These roles were continued by Enlil's son Ninota, who, as depicted on cylinder seal VA243, gave mankind the plough, and Enki's son Dumuzi, who was a shepherd. As was the case in other situations, the Bible merged the two gods, Enlil and Enki, into a single entity called Yahweh. Yahweh accepts the offering that the shepherd, Abel, brings from his flocks, but he rejects the offering that the farmer, Cain, brings from the fruit of the soil. After the story of Cain and Abel is finished in the Bible, the remainder of chapter 4 of Genesis is devoted to Cain and his descendants. Cain, who was afraid that he would be killed because of his sin, 
asks God for a visible protective arm mark, which he then grants him. This mark of Cain is a favorite among Sunday preachers. It will last for 70-fold generations. It needed to be a genetic marker in order for it to be passed down through the generations. Just as in the story of the flood, where the same Yahweh has had it with humanity and seeks its elimination but then proceeds to save it through Noah, so too does the same Yahweh who ignored, condemned and punished Cain now grant him safety and protection. Once more we see that the actions of Enki and those of Enlil were combined into one divine entity that the Bible calls Yahweh. As it was explained to a perplexed Moses in Exodus 3.14, the name meant, I will be whoever I will be. This referred to a universal God who at one time acted through as Enlil, at another time through as Enki, or at other times through as other entities, gods, as his emissaries. After a long journey, Cain found himself in the land of Nod, eastward of Eden, where he was safeguarded by a compassionate deity. Cain knew his wife and had a son named Enoch, which means founding or foundation, there. Cain also built a city and named it Enoch in honor of his son. Cain is mentioned in the Bible. Following that, unto Enoch Yered was born, and Yered begot Mehuyahel, and Mehuyahel begot Metushahel, and Metushahel begot Lamech. When the seventh generation, Adam, Cain, Enoch, Yared, Mehuyahel, Metushahel, and Lamech, is reached, the Bible mentions Lamech. Becomes generous and even laudatory, because of the information it contains on the Cain line and the accomplishments of this line. And Lamech took two different wives for himself. Ada is the name of one woman, and Zillah is the name of the other. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He is considered to be the progenitor of those who live in tents and tend flocks. Jubal was his brother's name, and he was the progenitor of all musicians who played the harp and pipe. Tubal Cain was an artist who worked with copper, iron, and any other metal you can think of. Zilla was his mother. Naama was Tubal Cain's sister, if I remember correctly. Lamech composed a song to honor the achievements of seven generations in the Cain lineage. The song which is mentioned in the Bible combined Cain's 70-fold with an invocation of an enigmatic 77 by Lamech to form a symbolic triple seven, 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 seven. In spite of its brevity, the story of the Cain line in the Bible depicts a high civilization that began with a laborer of the land, progressed through a Bedouin-like stage of nomadic tent dwellers who tend flocks, and perfected the transition from peasantry to city dwelling, boasting musicians and including metallurgists. The Cain line story is found in Genesis chapter 4. Where else, if not in Eden before the deluge or in the land that would become Sumer, did such a civilization emerge? The Bible doesn't specify where Cain ended up settling down. All it says is that he went east of Eden towards the land of Nod, sea wandering. The distance that Cain traveled east of Eden is unknown to us. Did he travel only as far as the land surrounding the Zagros Mountains, which would later become Elam, Gutium, and Media? Did he and his family continue to wander eastward across the Iranian plateau, eventually reaching the region of Luristan, known for its metalworking and the Indus Valley, which is rich in cattle? These nomads, 
Did they make it all the way to the Far East? Could they travel all the way across the Pacific Ocean to the Americas? Since people traveled to the Americas in some fashion, at some point in the distant past, thousands of years before the Great Flood, this is not an absurd question to ask. Who, how, and when remain unknown at this point? The prevalent view among academics is that the Sumerians and the people who succeeded them in Mesopotamia had no interest in a lost line of Canaanites, and as a result, no record of such a line existed in their culture. However, it is inconceivable that the biblical section about Cain's migration, generations, and impressive achievements was based on any source other than a written record from Mesopotamia. In point of fact, a tablet that is currently stored in the British Museum, catalogued BM 74329, which was transcribed, translated and reported by A. R. Millard and W. G. Lambert in the journal Cadmos, Volume 6, speaks of a group of people who were exiled and were ploughmen, as Cain was, a tiller of the land. They travelled until they came to a place known as Dunu, which some translations of the Bible refer to as the Land of Nod. There, their leader, whose name was Cain, built a city with a twin tower as its most prominent feature. He constructed the city of Dunu, which is known for its twin towers. Cain committed his life to assuming the role of Lord of the city. The clue that pertains to a city that is famous for its twin towers is particularly interesting. Not only is the most recent scientific conclusion that early humans arrived in the Americas via the Pacific Ocean, but this theory is also consistent with the folklore of local native communities in both South and North America. According to Mesoamerican folklore, the legendary ancestors of the region arrived in a boat from a land known as Seven Caves or Seven Shrines. I wondered in the Lost Realms and in When Time Began whether the name of the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, city of Tenoch, which is now Mexico City, might have really meant the city of Enoch, a city known when the Spaniards arrived by its twin-towered Aztec temple. I pointed out the parallels with the 7-7-7 in the Cain-Lamech line. I also wondered if the mark of Cain, which had to be spotted and identified by others immediately, could have been the lack of facial hair that Mesoamerican men possessed. This was a requirement for the ritual. The biblical account of Cain's travels and the construction of the city that he founded bears a striking resemblance to the events described in this text. However, it is assumed that these events took place within the geographical confines of the Near East. The idea that four brothers married their sisters and founded a new city is at the center of the primary legends of the beginnings of the indigenous peoples of South America. This is the reason why the idea of a trans-Pacific jump to the Americas persists despite its lack of verifiable evidence. There, the legend tells of the four Ayar brothers who married their sisters, went wandering, and founded the great city of Cusco with its temple. They found the correct site for this navel of the earth with the assistance of a golden wand given to them by the god Viracocha, creator of all. This story is detailed in The Lost Realms. In spite of the fact that one is left bewildered by these parallels, there is one thing that can be asserted with absolute certainty. If the legends and the people traveled, 
it was from the Near East to the Andes and not the other way around. If that is how it went down, then we have here a portion of humankind that might have survived the deluge without Noah's Ark, offering a human genetic lineage without the intermarriage intrusion. If that is the case, then we have a human genetic lineage here. After the verses about Lamech and 777, the Bible immediately continues with the information that back at home, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Sheth, Seth in English, a wordplay name meaning granted in Hebrew, for God hath granted another seed instead of Abel whom Cain had slain. There is no pause between these two sets of verses in the Bible, and to Seth also a son was born, and he named his name Enosh. It was at that time that calling by the name of Yahweh first began, Genesis 4.26. Seth, let it be noticed, is not just another son, he is another seed. The words of the Bible, therefore, make it abundantly clear that with the birth of Enosh to Seth, a new genealogical and genetic line has been launched. It leads straight to Noah and, as a result, to the post-diluvial surviving seed of mankind. It's easy to figure out where Enosh got his name. It carries the connotation of one who is frail or mortal, due to its Hebrew meaning of human. It originates from the same root as the term Enoshut, and is undeniably derived from the Akkadian Nishiti. Both terms mean humanity, humankind, and it is abundantly clear that it is this human lineage, as opposed to the one through the banished Cain, that is involved in the subsequent events, including the intermarriage with the sons of the Elohim. The editorial placement of the data, as well as the volume of it, expresses the importance that the Bible places on this genealogical line. Eight verses are inserted into the middle of chapter 4 of Genesis, between the story of Cain and Abel and the birth, to Adam and Eve, of Seth and Enosh. These verses describe the line of Cain and come after the story of Cain and Abel. The Bible devotes the final two verses of chapter 4, as well as the entirety of chapter 5 and all of its 32 verses, to the line that runs through Seth and Enosh. The list provides a genealogical chain of ten pre-diluvial patriarchs that is uninterrupted from Adam to Noah. There is no room for doubt that it is this lineage that led to Noah and, as a result, to the preservation of the seed of mankind and its restoration after the deluge. The Bible does not provide a lot of information about it despite the fact that it is the most prominent genealogical line, the information that is provided by the Bible, with one significant exception, consists of the name of each patriarch, the age at which that patriarch gave birth to his firstborn son, and the length of time that patriarch lived after that. Who exactly were these people? What made them stand out from the crowd? And what did they do for a living? The only thing about their lives that is immediately apparent is that they had an incredible amount of life expectancy, which was clearly a blessing. Sheth, Adam's son, lived to be 130 years old, took his name after him, and was fashioned in Adam's image and likeness. Adam lived another 800 years after having Sheth as his firstborn child, during which time he also had other sons and daughters. Therefore, Adam's total lifespan amounted to 930 years before he passed away. 
and Enosh was born to Sheth after he had lived 105 years. Sheth lived another 807 years after he gave birth to Enosh, and he had both sons and daughters during that time. And the total number of days that Sheth lived was 902 years before he passed away. The order of the list remains the same for the next four patriarchs, who are as follows. To Enosh, father's Kenan at the age of 90, continues living for another 815 years, father's additional sons, and then passes away at the age of 905. At the age of 70, Kenan gives birth to Mahalalel, who lives until the age of 910. At the age of 65, Mahalalel gives birth to Yared, also spelt Jared, who passes away in 895, and at the age of 162, Yared gives birth to Enoch, who lives until the age of 962. When it came to the seventh patriarch, Enoch, an extraordinary occurrence took place. According to the Bible, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah, but he did not pass away because Elohim took him at the age of 365. In a moment we will circle back around to this important revelation. For the time being, however, we will continue the record of the subsequent patriarchs to finish off their list and their age counts. Methuselah was 187 years old when he became a father to Lamech, and he lived until he was 996 years old. Lamech was 182 years old when she gave birth to Noah, and 111 years old when she passed away. Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born to Noah when he was 500 years old. When the deluge swept over the world, he was 600 years old at the time. Although these numbers may indicate extraordinary longevity, which is to be expected of those who were closer to the genetic infusion, the list suggests that the patriarchs lived to see not only their children and grandchildren, but also their great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and even beyond, and that they passed away right before the deluge. This is because the patriarchs died just before the deluge. Therefore, despite the fact that both Adam and Noah lived extraordinarily long lives, there was only a gap of 1,656 years between the two. Whether or not it seems odd, this lineage list of ten pre-diluvial patriarchs, which leads to the hero of the deluge and to the story of the deluge, unavoidably leads to the hero of the deluge. Invited scholarly efforts to compare it with the ten antediluvial kings of Berossus and his sources, which is not an easy task considering the fact that the Bible's mere 1,656 years from Adam's birth to the deluge is quite different from the 432,000 years of Berossus or the totals according to WB62, WB41044. There have been a lot of academic attempts at doing some numerical gymnastics in order to find a common denominator between the 1,656 years and the Mesopotamian numbers. These attempts need to be more convincing and reasonably acceptable. Our own attempt, in Divine Encounters, which focused on the obvious Noah-Zisudra identity and, as a result, the 636,000 relationship, pointed out that the numeral 1 in cuneiform could also mean 60, depending on its position, and therefore it could very well refer to the number 60. This suggests that the number 636,000 is related to the story of Noah and Zisudra. It is possible that the biblical redactor shortened the ages by a factor of 60 when writing them down. 
That would mean that there was a gap of 1960 years, 1656x60, between Adam and the deluge, which is still insufficient to close the gap. It should not come as a surprise that the computation method that is typically used yields incorrect results because the method itself is flawed. The Mesopotamian count begins with the arrival of the Anunnaki, 120 sars before the deluge. The Adamic count should begin not from the same moment, but rather from the time of fashioning Adam, 40 sars later, and even later still, from the time when the individual who is called Adam was born. The Mesopotamian count begins with the arrival of the Anunnaki, 120 sars before the deluge. In addition, the Mesopotamian list provides the lengths of reign, which, at best, should be compared to the times at which patriarchal succession occurred, rather than the times at which a son was born. If lifespan figures are used instead of birth of son dates, and those ages are multiplied by 60, the resulting range is more Barossus-like. Adam's 930 would become 55,800 years, Seth's 902 would be 54,720, Enosh's 905 would be 5300, and so on. Taking into account that Enoch's count was stopped at 365 and that of Noah's at 600, the grand total of the 10 lifespans is 825, which when multiplied by 60 results in 493,500 years. If we assume that the succession of power sometimes occurred before the death of the previous ruler, then we are not too far off from the Mesopotamian totals. Comparing the personalities of individuals, using their names and or occupations as clues, is a more fruitful line of inquiry that is worth pursuing. Could we, for instance, locate the place where the biblical Adam is mentioned in the lists of the Mesopotamian Ten Kings? If we look closely enough, we should be able to. There is no doubt in our minds that the first two Anunnaki kings both ruled from Eridu, the very first Anunnaki settlement that Ia Enki founded. Both of them had names that were typical of early Anunnaki people. Likely, Alulim was actually Alalu, the former king of Nibiru, who was installed as chief administrator, king, in Eridu by his son-in-law Ea Enki. There still needs to be more information regarding Alalgar, despite the fact that his name suggested settling down. It is possible that Alalgar was one of Enki's assistants. The fact that their reigns, as recorded in WB62, added up to a total of 119,200 years, is intriguing because it places them just under the 40 shahs, or 144,000 years, of Anunnaki labor that occurred before workman was created. It is the appropriate time for Adam, who was born to labor, to make his appearance. In point of fact, this is where the Mesopotamian list identifies the third ruler as Amalon, which translates to the workman in Akkadian and is a rendering of the Sumerian name Lulu Amalu. When we look at his name in the WB62 list, the answer is staring us in the face, Enkidunu, which unequivocally translates to Enki made or fashioned him in Sumerian. This is an obvious translation. The figure depicted in the Akkadian text Amalori and the Sumerian text Enkidunnu is that of the biblical Adam. WB62 then provides a list of two names, one of which is an abbreviated version of Alima, and the other is Dumuzi, a shepherd. The names and the order in which they appear give us pause. 
Incredibly, alim means grazing land, or its animal, the ram, in Sumerian, whereas Dumuzi literally translates to son who is life. Could these Sumerian names refer to Adam's sons, Abel, the herder, and then Seth, the son through whom the new line of life was granted? Several studies that compared the list of patriarchs found in the Bible with the list found in Berossus have already suggested that the name Ammonon in Berossus originates from the Akkadian and Hebrew term for craftsman or artificer, Aman, a description that fits the biblical Kenan, Amar, artificer of implements. Without going into detail about the rest of the names, the examples that have been provided up to this point strongly suggest that the Bible and Berossus are common sources for the various Sumerian king lists. Our investigation and findings go further than simply arriving at the conclusion that the data had to have originated from a singular source somewhere in the world. Because if the Sumerian pre-diluvial rulers and the biblical pre-diluvial patriarchs were the same people, then this begs the question, who, exactly, were these patriarchs? Adam, Seth and Enosh, along with other biblical figures, could have been mortal men if they lived and ruled for periods that were counted in shahs. Why does the Bible state over and over that each of these people died if they were the Sharia rulers of the Sumerian king list? Or were they a hybrid of the two, that is, partially human and partially divine, also known as demigods, with all of the genetic ramifications that this type of hybridization entails? Could the biblical patriarchs, such as Noah, have been the men of renown of Genesis chapter 6, who were fathered by the Nephilim who had mated with the daughters of man? If so, this would mean that the Nephilim fathered the biblical patriarchs. If we want an answer, an incredible answer, we have to revisit all of the sources that are currently at our disposal. The strength in Numbers 7. Our day-to-day -day activities are organized around the seven-day work week, which is an odd number that does not correspond to either our decimal, base 10, as the number of our digits in two hands. System or the Sumerian sexagesimal, shas, base 60 system which we continue to employ for geometry, astronomy and timekeeping. The biblical account of creation, which took place over seven days, the seventh day being a day of rest and reflection, provides an explanation for this peculiar choice, consisting of. Each of these biblical sevens is explained in turn by one of the seven tablets that make up Enuma Elish, which is known as the Mesopotamian Epic of Creation. However, why is that text written on seven different tablets? The number seven, including the numeral seven and seventy, is mentioned somewhere between 500 and 600 times in the Bible, making it one of the most common numbers in the Bible. It is also an important number in the New Testament, including the prophetic book of Revelation, as well as in the pseudepigraphic books, such as the seven classes of angels in the book of Enoch. Both of these can be found in the Christian Bible. From the beginning of Egyptian mythology, beginning with the activities of the gods, this was always the case. The first divine dynasty was led by seven gods, Pitar to Horus, and there were a total of 49 divine and demigod rulers before the Pharaonic era began. This figure is calculated by multiplying seven by seven. 
The origins of Mesoamerican culture can be traced back to seven different tribes, and so on. The Anunnaki who had traveled to Earth from Nibiru were the first people to give serious thought to the significance of the number seven as a power number. The seventh city to ever exist on Earth was called Nippur, and it was known as the Mission Control Center. There were seven sages and the seven who judge among them. Ziggurats were constructed with seven levels, and the stylus of seven numbers was believed to be where stars were housed. The sevenfold weapon belonged to a god, and there were seven weapons of terror in total. The release of the Bull of Heaven resulted in seven years of famine, and the inauguration of a temple resulted in seven blessings being bestowed upon the community. And this continues forever. We believe that the position of Earth as the seventh planet from the perspective of the Anunnaki, as seen through the sky map of Enlil's route from Nibiru to Earth, is the source of all of that. It says that Enlil went by seven planets to get to Earth. The count begins with Pluto, then moves on to Neptune and Uranus as the second and third planets, followed by Saturn and Jupiter. Mars is the fifth planet, Jupiter is the fourth and fifth, and the seventh planet in our solar system is Earth. As a result, the celestial symbol for Earth consisted of seven dots, as can be seen on an Assyrian monument, along with the celestial symbols for the moon, Nibiru, and the sun, as well as the gods associated with them. Regarding the patriarchs and the demigods, someone who is a product of the mating of a god, or goddess, with an earthling, and shares the genomes of both of their parents is considered to be a demigod by definition. The Bible asserts without a shred of ambiguity that such mating had taken place and that heroic men of renown were born as a result both before and after the deluge. This assertion comes despite the fact that the possibility may sound startling or be disregarded as a myth. That appears to be all that the Bible has to say about such a game-changing event in history. It was the cause for the plan to terminate mankind by the deluge, in contrast to the Mesopotamian texts, which are filled with tales of demigods, with Gilgamesh being among the most famous of these. This, as we will see in the following section, throws open the possibility of discoveries being made in our own time. If you take a closer look at the information you have access to and use deduction, you will find that the scant information in the Bible about the pre-diluvial patriarchs fits with the more detailed information from Mesopotamia. This conclusion can be reached by looking closely at the information you have access to. The brief statement in Genesis 6 about the sons of the Elohim who had taken daughters of man as wives is also substantially augmented in other ancient Hebrew writings. Lost books that have not made it into the canonical Hebrew Bible, collectively known as the Apocrypha, Bishri, secret hidden writings, or pseudo-epigrapha of the Old Testament, and it behoves us to explore that as well. The Bible itself provides evidence that such writings did in fact exist, it makes reference to a number of lost books whose existence and contents were well known during that period, but which have since been misplaced. In Numbers chapter 21 verse 14, there is a reference to the book of the wars of Yahweh. In Joshua chapter 10 verse 13, there is a reference to the miraculous events that are described in the book of Yasha. These books, along with the others that were mentioned, have been completely misplaced. 
On the other hand, some of the books that were lost, including the Book of Adam and Eve, the Book of Enoch, the Book of Noah, and the Book of Jubilees have been passed down to us through the ages. These books have been preserved for us through translations into languages other than Hebrew, and in some cases, the later tenderers have rewritten these books in whole or in part. These manuscripts are significant not only because they repeat information from the Bible, but also because they purport to provide additional information to biblical stories. For example, some of them record the event of intermarriage and fill in the details, while others record the event itself. In the sixth chapter of Genesis, the Bible describes God as having two completely opposing mindsets. In spite of the fact that he initially disapproves of the union between the sons of the Elohim and the daughters of man, he comes to see their offspring as courageous men of renown. He makes the decision to exterminate all of humanity from the face of the earth, but he makes every effort to save the human race's progenitors by sending Noah and the ark. We now realize that the apparent contradictions are caused by the Bible's merging of multiple gods with opposing beliefs, such as Enki and Enlil, into a single divine being known as Yahweh. The authors of the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch attempted to solve the problem of the dual nature of God by explaining that the visit of the angels to earth was originally intended to be beneficent, but that some of the angels were misguided by their leaders into taking human women as wives after they arrived on earth. According to the Book of Jubilees, it took place during the reign of Yared, Traksh, he of descending. A man whose father, Mahalalel, gave him this name because it was during his lifetime that angels of the Lord descended to the earth. They were supposed to instruct the children of men with judgment and uprightness but instead they ended up defiling themselves with the daughters of man. Their mission was to instruct the children of men with judgment and uprightness. According to those extra-biblical texts, there were approximately 200 watchers who organized themselves into 20 groups of 10. Each group had a named leader. The majority of the names were Kohabiel, Barakel, Yomiel, etc. Our theophoric names honoring El which can be translated as lofty. One of them, who went by the name Shemiazaz and was in charge of everything, insisted that everyone take an oath to work together. After that, every one of them chose for himself one, and they began to go in unto them and defile themselves with them. The women then gave birth to giants. However, the Book of Enoch reveals that the fallen angel Azazel, also known as the Might of El, was the one who instigated the rebellion, the one who led astray the sons of God and brought them down to earth and led them astray through the daughters of man. Azazel was cast out of heaven as punishment for his sins. According to Mesopotamian texts, which include sections that deal with Marduk's exile, Marduk was the first one to break the taboo and marry, as opposed to just having sex. Sarpanit, an earthling woman, and to have a son named Nabu by her. And one is left wondering to what extent Marduk's involvement played a role in Enlil's anger. Sarpanit was an earthling woman. It will be recalled that Enoch was the next pre-diluvial patriarch after Yared, and that he walked with the Elohim, and did not die because he was taken away to be with them, as it is stated in Genesis 5 24 Enoch 
walked with the Elohim, and did not die because he was taken away to be with them. Enoch continued to walk with the gods for another three hundred years after he had become a father to Metushelah, during which time he also fathered additional sons and daughters. The total number of days that Enoch lived was 365 years. Enoch walked with Elohim until he no longer existed. Elohim had taken him at that time. This statement is expended upon in the book that is attributed to him, called the Book of Enoch. This book describes how the Watcher's affair was the reason why the righteous angels had revealed the secrets of heaven and earth, as well as the past and the future, to Enoch. Through the revelations that were given to Enoch, the goal was to direct humanity back onto the path of righteousness, which it had strayed from as a result of the actions of the Watchers. According to these writings, Enoch was taken to heaven twice, whereas the Bible says that he initially walked with the gods, Elohim, and then was taken by them. The book of Enoch describes a multitude of angels and archangels as being responsible for carrying all of that out. His stay with the Holy Ones started with a dream vision in which his bedroom was filled with clouds which invited me and a mist which summoned me, and a kind of whirlwind lifted me upwards and bore me unto heaven. He wrote about this experience later on in his book. After he miraculously broke through a wall made of flaming crystals, he entered a house made of crystals with a ceiling that resembled the night sky. Finally, he arrived at a palace made of crystal and saw the great glory there. He was guided closer to a throne by an angel, and as he got closer, he was able to hear the Lord tell him that he had been selected to be shown the heavenly secrets so that he could pass them on to the people of earth. After that, he was given the identities of the seven archangels who minister to the Lord and who will guide him along his path of self-discovery as his guides. That brought an end to the dream vision he had been having. Later on, exactly 90 days before Enoch's 365th birthday, when Enoch was home alone, two men, exceedingly big, whose appearance was such as I have never seen before, appeared out of nowhere. Enoch had never seen anyone with such an appearance before. Their skin shone, their garments were unlike anything else, and their arms were reminiscent of golden wings. They stood at the head of my couch and called upon me by name. Enoch later related to his sons Metushael and Regim. Enoch was informed by the two divine emissaries that they had come to take him on a second, more extended journey through the celestial realm. They also suggested that he let his sons and servants know that he would be absent for a while. After that, the two angels picked him up, carried him on their wings, and brought him to the first heaven. There was a large sea there, and Enoch was instructed in the climatological and meteorological enigmas of the region while he was there. As he continued his journey, he went through the second heaven, which was a place of punishment for wicked people. Paradise, the destination of the righteous, was located in the third heaven. Enoch was shown the mysteries of the sun, the moon, the stars, the zodiacal constellations, and the calendar while he was in the fourth heaven, which was the highest and most extended level. At the level known as the fifth heaven, the connection between earth and heaven began to weaken. This level was known as the home of angels who connected themselves with women. 
It was there that the first segment of Enoch's journey through the celestial realm was finished. When Enoch resumed his journey, he traveled through the sixth and seventh heavens. There he met many different classes of angels who were arranged in ascending order, including cherubim, seraphim, and archangels. In total, there were seven different orders. After ascending to the eighth heaven, he was able to make out the individual stars that comprise the various constellations. When he reached the ninth heaven, he had a clear view of the zodiac realm. At long last, he arrived at the tenth heaven, and there the angels presented him before the face of the Lord. The fear caused him to collapse to his knees and offer a prayer. Then the Lord made his voice heard to him and said, Get up, Enoch, and don't be afraid. Get up and stand in front of my face to secure your place in eternity. And the Lord commanded the archangel Michael to remove the earthly garments from Enoch and replace them with divine garments, as well as to anoint him. The Lord commanded the archangel Pravuel to bring out the books from the sacred storehouse and a quick writing reed and give them to Enoch. This was done so that Enoch could write down everything that the archangel would read to him, which included all the commandments and teachings. During thirty days and thirty nights, Pravuel dictated to Enoch the secrets of the workings of the heavens, the earth and the seas, and all the elements, the thunderings of thunders, and the sun and the moon, the comings and goings of the stars, and the seasons, years, days, and hours. Enoch then wrote down the secrets of the workings of the heavens, the earth and the seas, and all the elements. In addition to that, he was educated in human things, such as the tongues of human songs. The writings encompassed a total of 360 books. After being taken back into the presence of the Lord, Enoch was positioned to the Lord's left, next to the archangel Gabriel, and the Lord revealed to Enoch the origins of both the heavens and the earth. Then the Lord said to Enoch that he would be brought back to earth for thirty days so that he could leave the handwritten books to humanity as an inheritance that would be handed down from generation to generation. When Enoch got back to his house, he told his sons about his journey, explained the meaning of the books to them, and encouraged them to live righteously and keep the commandments. When Enoch's thirty-day homecoming was up, he was still talking and explaining what had happened. By that time, word had spread throughout the community, and a large crowd of people gathered around Enoch's house, eager to hear the specifics of the heavenly journey and the heavenly teachings. Enoch continued to talk and explain until the end of his homecoming. Therefore, the Lord cast a dark cloud over the earth, and in the gloom two angels swooped down and carried Enoch away to the highest heaven. Upon discovering that Enoch had disappeared, the people could not understand how Enoch had been taken. They went back to their homes, and those who witnessed such a thing glorified God. And it was said of the sons of Enoch that they erected an altar at the place where Enoch had been taken up to heaven. A scribal postscript states that it took place precisely when Enoch reached the age of 365 years, which is a number that alludes to his newly acquired knowledge of astronomy and the calendar. At this point, one is reminded of the statement made by Manetho concerning a dynasty of 30 demigods in Egypt who ruled for a total of 3,150 years 
which is a number that is exactly 365 multiplied by 10. Is this just a coincidence? It is noteworthy that neither the Bible, in the limited information it provides about Enoch, nor the Book of Enoch, which contains more than 100 chapters, explains why Enoch was chosen for the extraordinary divine encounters and how he avoided dying the death of a mortal. In other words, how he was exceptional and unique. The fact that it was during his lifetime that the descending of the Nephilim took place provides an explanation for the name of the individual who begot him, which is Yared. It is clear that the name Yared comes from the Hebrew root verb that means to descend, but the name is grammatically awkward, so it is unknown whether Yared himself is one who had descended, which would give him the status of a god and make his son a demigod. The city where Enoch lived, the location of miraculous events, and the location of an altar commemorating those events should be mentioned in the book of Genesis. It makes one wonder if it was also the town of his father, Yared, the parallel of the Canaanite Yirad, whether the name echoes the name of the city, Eridu. If this is the case, if the location of Enoch's divine encounters was Eridu, famous for its association with Enki and the Anunnaki, then we have here details that link those biblical and extra-biblical pre-diluvial patriarchs back to the Sumerian pre-diluvial kings, as well as to the sons of the Elohim, whom the Bible itself describes as Gibberim, heroic men of renown. Already in antiquity, there was widespread speculation regarding the possibility that the biblical patriarchs who lived before the deluge were actually gods, particularly Noah. Scholars have come to the conclusion that the Book of Enoch contains passages that were taken from an earlier book that was misplaced, called the Book of Noah. The existence of this book can be traced back to a variety of other early writings as well as the varying writing styles found within the Book of Enoch's various chapters. When fragments of the Book of Noah were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are part of a virtual library that was hidden in caves at a site called Qumran, on the shores of the Dead Sea in Israel some 2,000 years ago, the hypothesis was proven to be correct. In that scroll, the word that is typically translated as watchers clearly calls them Nephilim, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew word Nephilim. According to the relevant chapters of the book, the name Bath Enosh, which literally translates to daughter of Enosh, was given to the wife of Lamech, who is described as being the biblical Noah's father. Lamech had reason to be suspicious of his son Noah from the moment he was born because the infant was so peculiar. He stood out from the other infant boys in his bright eyes and the fact that he could already communicate with others. And immediately after that, Lamech thought in his heart that the conception was from one of the watchers. Lamech told his father, Metushela, his suspicions and they were as follows. I have been blessed with a peculiar son who is distinct from and unlike man, and in the manner of the offspring of the God who rules the heavens. His character is distinct, and he is not the same as we are. In addition, he did not originate from me, but rather from the angels. Lamech questioned his wife, Barthinosh, because he had a hunch that the boy's biological father was one of the watchers. He demanded that she swear to him, by the Most High, the Lord Supreme, the King of all the worlds, the ruler of the sons of heaven, 
that she would tell him the truth about the boy's biological father. Barthinosh's response to Lamech was to tell him, Remember my delicate feelings. The event is very unsettling, and my spirit is trembling within its covering at the moment. Lamech was perplexed by her response, so he requested once more that she swear to tell him the truth. Bathanosh brought up her delicate feelings once more to remind Lamesh of them, but then she swore on the Holy and Great One, and gave him her word that this conception was by you and not by some stranger or by any of the Watchers. Lamech was relieved to hear that. Lamech, who was unconvinced, went to Metushela, his father, with a request. He wanted Metushela to find Enoch, Lamech's father, who had been abducted by the Holy Ones, and ask Enoch to ask the Holy Ones about the fatherhood question. Metushela found his father Enoch at the ends of the earth, and he told Enoch about the Noah puzzle, and conveyed Lamech's request to Enoch. Yes, Enoch told him, in the days of my father, Yared, some angels of heaven did transgress and united themselves with women, and have married some of them, and begot children by them. But you can reassure Lamech that he who has been born is in truth his son. Noah's odd features and unusual talents are due to the fact that he was chosen by God for a special destiny, as predicted in the heavenly tablets. Lamech decided to take those reassurances at face value. But what are we to make of the entire story? Was Noah, after all, a demigod? If so, his descendants, including us, have a higher proportion of Anunnaki genes than Adam did. The following is an excerpt from the Bible's introduction to the story of the Deluge. These are the records that Noah kept of his generation. Noah was a just and upright man. He was flawless with regard to his family tree. Noah walked in the presence of the Elohim. A rereading of the earlier Nephilim verses in Genesis 6 reinforces the impression that the Bible itself left the question hanging by stating, after verse 4 about the demigods who were the mighty men of old, men of renown, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, verse 8. If this leaves one wondering, a rereading of the earlier Nephilim verses in Genesis 6 reinforces the impression that the Bible itself left the question hanging. There is no indication that but comes next because the verse begins with and, as if it were a direct sentence. Continuation of the discussion from the previous verses regarding the gods' offspring, in days gone by they were known as the mighty men. Men of reputation, as well as, ma'am, in addition to Noah, who obtained favor in the eyes of the Lord. When interpreted in this manner, Noah would have been one of the mighty men of renown. He would have been a demigod whose reign spanned 600 years before the invention of the deluge telescope. Ziusudra and Utnapishtim ruled for 36,000 years. There is a story in the Sumerian texts about a pre-diluvian figure named En-Ami Duranki, who is also known as En-Ami Durana. This figure's story is strikingly similar to that of the biblical figure Enoch. His theophoric name connects him to the Dur.an.ki, which means bond heaven-earth, which was Enlil's command center in Nippur. It is important to keep in mind that the biblical patriarch Enoch is mentioned in the genealogical lines, descended from both Cain and Seth. 
In the context of the competition between Enki and Enlil, Enmeduranki's parallel to Enoch would lean more towards the Kainite One, whose a defining characteristic was the founding of a new city. According to the Sumerian texts, the events pertaining to Enmeduranki no longer take place in Eridu, but rather in a new center called Sippar, where he reigned for 21,600 years. Eridu is not mentioned at all during this time. According to the newly discovered texts, the gods, Shamash and Adad, took Enmeduranki to the celestial assembly of the gods, where he was taught the ins and outs of various fields of knowledge, including medicine, astronomy, mathematics, and so on. After that, he went back to Sippar in order to establish a family tree of priest savants there. In the kingdom of Sippar, Enmeduranki was a beloved prince who was cherished by Anu, Enlil, and Ea. He was given the position of priest by Shamash in the Bright Temple, which is located in Ibaba. Shamash and Adad were the ones who brought him before the Council of the Gods. He was dressed, or perhaps purified, by Shamash and Adad. A massive throne made of gold was prepared for him to sit on by Shamash and Adad. They revealed to him the secret of Anu, Enlil, and Ea by demonstrating how to observe oil on water. They gave him a divine tablet called Kibdu, which contained a secret that was shared between heaven and earth. They gave him a favored instrument of the great gods made of cedar and placed it in his hand. They instructed him in the process of performing computations with numerical values. The two gods Shamash and Adad, who were respectively Enlil's grandson and son, then returned Enmeduranki to Sippar and instructed him to report his divine encounter to the populace and to make his acquired knowledge available to humankind. This is the knowledge that will be passed down from generation to generation, from person to person. Father to son, beginning with him as the first in a priestly line. The intellectual prodigy, who watches over the secrets of the great gods, is going to swear an oath in front of Shamash and Adad to bind his favored son. Through the use of a stylus and the divine tablets, he will reveal to him the mysteries of the gods and their ways. The postscript on the tablet says, Thus the line of priests was created. These are the individuals who are permitted to approach Shamash and Adad. It was a motif commonly found in Mesopotamian art, in which two eagle men were depicted flanking a gateway, a tree of life, or a rocket. In this Sumerian version of the Enoch tale, the two gods acted as the two archangels in the Book of Enoch version. Even though in the legible parts of the Enmeduranki tablets, it is not asserted that he was a demigod beyond the statement that he was a prince in Sippar. His inclusion in the list of pre-diluvial rulers with a reign of six shahs, or on 21,600 earth years, should serve as an indicator. No mere mortal from earth could have lived that long. However, this longevity was a far cry from that of the actual Anunnaki gods. Enki, for example, lived through the entirety of the 120 shahs that passed between the arrival and the deluge. And he had already reached adulthood when he arrived on earth and continued to reside there after the deluge. If the eight rulers who followed Alulim and Alalgar were not true gods in their own right, then we must consider them to have been demigods instead. 
How can this conclusion be reconciled, for example, in the case of the tenth ruler, the hero of the deluge, if the Bible, in reference to Noah, lists him as the son of Lamech and the Sumerian texts, in reference to Ziusudra, list him as the son of Ubatutu? The answer can be found in stories about demigods, beginning with Bathinosh, who was the mother of Noah, and ending with Olympias, who was the mother of Alexander. Assuming that the perpetrator was the husband, it must have been a god. This explanation does a wonderful job of confirming the child's status as a demigod, while also clearing the mother of any accusations of adultery. An intriguing example that demonstrates the universality of this explanation comes to us from Egypt, where some of the most well-known pharaohs bore theophoric names with the suffix MSS, also rendered MES, MSES, Mose, which meant issue offspring of. Examples of these names include Thothmes, which means issue of the god Thoth, and Ramses, which means issue of the god Ra, amongst others. Pharaoh Thothmes the Pham, who ruled Egypt during the 18th century BC, died in 1512 BC, providing a good example of this phenomenon. Both his legitimate wife, who gave birth to their daughter, Hatshepsut, and one of his concubines gave birth to his son. He is survived by both of his children. The son, who would later become known as Thothmes Sun, wed his half-sister Hatshepsut in an effort to establish the legitimacy of his claim to the throne. The union resulted in the birth of only daughters, and when Thothmes II passed away, in 1504 BC, after only a brief reign, the only male heir was a son who was not produced by Hatshepsut, but rather by a harem girl. Because the boy was still too young to rule alone, Hatshepsut was given the role of co-regent alongside her son. Then, however, she came to the conclusion that she was the only person who should have held the position of king, and she ascended the throne in her own right as a legitimate pharaoh. In order to justify and legitimize that, she came out with the claim that while Thothmes was her nominal father, she was actually conceived when the god Amon, and the unseen Ra, disguising himself as the husband king, was intimate with her mother. This was her way of justifying and legitimizing the fact that she was actually the daughter of Amon. The following statement was included in Egypt's royal annals in order to record Hatshepsut's demigod origins, and it was done on the orders of Hatshepsut. The god Amon assumed the form of his majesty, the king, who was also the queen's husband. After that, he didn't waste any time and went straight to her, where he had sexual relations with her. After that, the god Amun, who is also known as the Lord of the Thrones of the Two Lands, spoke these words to her in her presence. Amun was the one who created Hatshepsut, will be the name of this daughter of mine that I have conceived inside of you. She will rule this entire land in a way that is to everyone's benefit as king. After Hatshepsut, the Queen of Egypt, passed away in 1482 BC, the boy, who was later known as Thothmes III, finally became pharaoh. Her great and magnificent funerary temple at Deir el-Bahari is still standing. It is located on the western bank of the Nile, directly across from ancient Thebes, today's Luxor Karnak, and on its interior walls, the story of Hatshepsut's birth as a demigod is depicted in a series of murals that are accompanied by hieroglyphic writing. 
The scene depicted on the murals begins with the god Amon, accompanied by the god Thoth, making their way into the sleeping quarters of Queen Amose, who was married to Thothmes Thesseus. According to the accompanying hieroglyphic inscriptions, the god Amon posed as the queen's husband so that he could steal her throne. After that, the glorious god, Amon himself, who was also known as the Lord of the Thrones of the Two, appeared before her while disguised as her husband. They, the two gods, discovered her, the queen, sleeping in the lovely sanctuary in which they had taken refuge. She opened her eyes when she smelled the fragrance of God, and she laughed merrily in the presence of his majesty. Ammon, who was consumed by love, marred a beline for her as Thoth stealthily left the room. As he got closer to her, she was able to see him transform into the form of a god. She couldn't believe her eyes when she saw his handsome face. God and the queen, who were both smitten, had sexual encounters. His love seeped into every crevice of her body. The air was thick with the intoxicating aroma of God's presence. The majestic God did whatever he pleased to her as he saw fit. She cheered him up with all of herself and gave him a passionate kiss. In point of fact, the attributions of liaisons by Ra that resulted in the conferral of demigod status upon subsequent Egyptian pharaohs date back to earlier dynastic times. One of the mysteries surrounding Egypt's fifth dynasty, in which three related pharaohs succeeded each other without being either faithers or sons, may even be solved by a story that was written on papyrus. According to the Ligen, they came into existence after the god Ra had sexual relations with the woman who was married to the high priest of his temple. As the labor pains started, it was discovered that the woman was carrying triplets and would have a very difficult time giving birth to all three of her babies. In order to facilitate the births, Ra called forth four birth goddesses and pleaded with his father Ptah for assistance. The text describes how all of those gods helped the wife of the high priest give birth in quick succession to three sons, who were given the names Uzakaf, Sahura, and Kakai. The text also mentions that these sons were named after the high priest. They were a demigod triplet, as evidenced by the fact that historical records demonstrate that the three of them did indeed reign in succession as pharaohs forming the fifth dynasty. The story not only provides Egyptologists with an explanation for that peculiar dynasty, but it also provides an explanation for a bas-relief that was discovered by archaeologists and depicts the pharaoh Sahura as a baby being suckled by a goddess. This is a privilege that is only granted to those who are born of divine origin. Such a divine suckling was also claimed by Hatshepsut in order to further her claim to divinely ordained kingship. She asserted that the goddess Hathor, also known as the Mother of Gods, suckled her. This was done in order to support her claim that she was divinely ordained to rule. A subsequent ruler, who was also the son of Thothmes III, also claimed to have been breastfed by the gods. After this, the renowned pharaoh Ramses II made a claim to direct demigod status by recording in the royal annals the following revelation that the great god Tar himself made to the king of Egypt. This is your father speaking. I took on the form of Mendes, lord of the rams, and conceived you inside of thy august mother while I was in that form. 
It is important to keep in mind that the god the Egyptians referred to as Tar was actually Enki. If such a claim to having been fathered by not just one of the gods but by the head of the pantheon appears to be too far-fetched, then you should remember our explanation. And it was not implausible to think that Enki might have been the child's father.